Well, good morning, Claremont Bible Chapel. Uh, have you all ever seen the movie Hook? Hook, Robin Williams, Dustin Hoffman. Oh, yeah, yeah, Allie's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was one of my favorite uh, movies growing up as a kid. And there's this, there's this scene in it, if you don't know the story, Rob Williams plays Peter Pan and he's grown up and now he's coming back because Hook has come and taken his kids captive and uh, he's using them as bait to lure Peter Pan so he could bring Peter Pan out and kill him back in Neverland. And it's so interesting because Neverland is supposed to be a place that makes you forget. And so Hook has the kids and he goes through this period where he wants to make the kids hate their parents. He wants to turn the kids against their parents. And so what he does is he uses things that have taken place in their regular life and he puts a twist on them to make it seem like the parents don't really love them. And there's a scene that takes place and he goes, um, why parents hate their children? And the little girl goes, well, doesn't mommy read to us every night? And Hook says, well, she just reads to you to shut you up and to put you to sleep so that she could have some peace and quiet. She doesn't read to you because she loves you. And there's this scene that he, he keeps going with this theme. And he says, you know, before your parents had children, they could do whatever they want. They'd stay up all night just to see the sunrise. Before your parents had you, they were happy. They were free. And the little girl's like, no, this is not the case. But the boy that's a little bit older that kind of already feels a little bit of the way he's been treated by his father, like, maybe this is true. And all of a sudden, they, he starts to believe these things. And this is how the story goes. What's interesting about that, it's not pointless, that it has something to do with our message this morning. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul is defending himself against a group of people that have come in and spread these lies. And what they do is they use snippets of what happened that are true, but they put a sinister twist on it to make you believe the lie. And you got to see, Satan does this all the time. He'll start with something that is true, but he gives an impure or a false motive to taint it, to make it look ugly. He does this with God frequently. And you can remember it even with Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, God doesn't want you to take of this fruit because God doesn't want you to be like him, knowing the difference between good and evil. Well, it was true that God did not want them to take of the fruit, but it wasn't true that God didn't want them to be like him, that that was a lie. But you tell the, that part that's the truth so that you would believe the lie. And this is what's taking place in uh, Thessalonica. And Paul is going to be defending himself in this chapter. And in defending himself, we might think that maybe his motive is um, he doesn't want to look bad or he, he wants to correct the record. He wants to make sure that people think well of him. But we would be assigning an impure motive to Paul because Paul's real heart is understanding that if the people have a problem with the guy that brought him the message, they may have a problem with the message. And he's clearing this up so that the saints would be strengthened in the message that they heard and that the church would be strengthened as a result of it. So Paul is not correcting this just because Paul wants to look good. Uh, Paul is correcting these things because he wants them to go on for the Lord without any hindrance. So what do you do? What do you do when somebody uh, assigns impure motives to you? Uh, we're going to see what Paul does here. And Paul immediately calls the Thessalonians to witness. So he's going to bring up a number of things. 
that have taken place in the past, and he's going to explain the true record here. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to tackle, Lord willing, the first 12 verses of chapter 2. So if you, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 12. Paul begins, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witness, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. <clears throat> Jason's going to correct me. Thank you. Could you move it back up? <laughs> so what, we, what, what begins here, and this is an, an interesting chapter, um, we don't often get to see the touchy-feely side of Paul. Um, you get to see it a little bit with Timothy, uh, especially in 2 Timothy, how Timothy, uh, Paul really cares for Timothy. But in this case, Paul is speaking of an entire assembly, an entire group of people. And we get a glimpse into the heart of a, um, of the heart of a shepherd, the heart of a, a minister of the gospel, into how they feel towards the people that they're speaking to, how they feel towards the people that they're laboring amongst. And it is a reminder to us that if we don't have this type of uh, feeling for the people that we're around or the people that we're um, fellowshipping with, then we need to review our attitude and how we're approaching these things and have more of the mind of Christ. And really what makes this so appealing to us is we know the kind of man Paul is. When you read a portion like this, I was like a mother to you, I was like a father to you, but before I got saved, I was one that came and took you prisoners and had you beaten and had you killed. That's what I did before. And I had no sympathy. The law was to be followed strictly. This was a man... That, that, that would go into places and drag families out, drag people out and have them tried and have them killed. We know Paul's not really like this. Uh, Paul is like this because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And what we see when we read this portion is we see Christ living out through Paul. And it's a reminder to us of, of the character of our Lord and Savior and the, the character that we too are to have. And if we say, well, I'm not really like that or that's not my style. That's why they probably had me speak on 1 Thessalonians 2, because I am such an uh, expressive of my love and care for the, the saints here. But we don't have the excuse of saying, that's not me, because we got saved. 
and if we got saved, we're to live as Christ, and that's how Christ is. So if it's not like that, then we need to change. It, it's, it's as simple as that. So let's break in. I want you to notice in a couple things, uh, he begins with this idea. For, he says, for you yourselves know. And this you is a real emphatic. Uh, he uses this term, you are witnesses. I'm calling you to remember. And when he says this you, it's almost like you of all people. Like you above everybody else should know that this is how it was. Not like, oh, you know, like we're aware. But like you more than anybody else know this to be true. So he says that our coming to you was not in vain. And this is following a thought in verse 9 uh, in chapter 1. It says, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry or reception we had to you. This idea of being welcomed amongst the people. He's continuing this thought uh, from earlier. That our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. In these first two verses, there's a contrast that the Apostle Paul is making. He's saying that you know that it wasn't in vain, and we might take that to mean uh, vain has this connotation of being empty, uh, being useless. And so we would say, well, maybe it wasn't in vain because people got saved, because people became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was fruit, so it wasn't empty, it wasn't in vain. But this is what comes important when we talk about our own Bible study, our own personal looking at the scriptures. When you have two ideas that contrast one another, if that is the case, that the, the, it's not in vain because fruit came, the second should follow, that Paul states that. But it isn't what Paul states. If you look at the end of verse 2, it says that we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So it wasn't in vain because he preached to them the gospel of God, even though it was in much conflict. So if it, something that would have been in vain would have been he never spoke to them at all. He never had opportunity to speak. So sometimes we look at a ministry that we're involved in, uh, something that we're laboring for the Lord, we're pouring ourselves out, and we might have the wrong idea of what success is, what, what, um, what fruit is in that sense, what God wants to see. We might think that God wants to see results, and if we're not producing results that we can visibly see, then, you know, this is all in vain. And that is not true. And Paul explains that that is not true in these two verses here. Because the fact that you're going out and you're doing it, and I know week in and week out, you're tired. I know week in and week out, it's a hard thing to do to continue to come and to minister to people that may be difficult. But the fact that you come and do it for the sake of those people, to speak the gospel, to, to take the time to be a minister to them, your work's not in vain. It's not being done in vain. So we need to change our mindset to think of more how God views these things instead of what we want to see. Now, do we all want to see results? Do we all want to see people saved? Of course we do. That's, that's, that's what we, we enjoy seeing. But don't think that if you're not seeing that, that your work is in vain. Paul says that the opportunity to speak the gospel was the, was the goal. Uh, what's interesting here, I don't know, uh, many of you probably weren't in Rachel and Kathy's uh, cubby class on Thursday, but they talked about uh, Paul and Silas in, in, in Philippi and how they were in chains. So just a review. He's speaking of this case. So if you remember, 
Paul and Silas uh, were in Philippi. They were preaching. A riot started. They were taken. They were publicly beaten. Um, So they perhaps were probably stripped naked and beaten in public. Then they were taken and thrown in jail, all without a trial, even though they were Roman citizens, and it is completely illegal to do any of that. So publicly beaten, thrown in jail, they, they, the earthquake happens, the chains break, the Philippian jailer uh, gets saved, and he takes him, and he's, he's washing their wounds with water, so they were, they were pretty messed up. And then they found out they were Roman citizens, and they kind of just like, okay, just get out of town. Just, just kind of get going. Don't, and he, they stop at Lydia's house, but then they, they make their way off. So it, 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 I want you to imagine that. Uh, one, as, as having experienced it, um, you know, in the United States, it's, we have the, the First Amendment right to speak whatever we want to speak, to say whatever we want to say. Uh, and imagine just somebody coming in here and throwing me down on the ground and taking my clothes off and whipping me on the back and then taking me and throwing me in prison. And then you never really hear from me again. And weeks later, you hear that I'm in Thessalonica. And you think, well, that guy was just in, got out of jail. Like, he was publicly beaten in front of everybody. If he didn't do anything wrong, then he would have stood up and he would have said, you know, hey, I have a First Amendment right to do this and you cannot do this to me. Paul didn't do any of that. So you can see how someone could take that of what happened and then apply an impure motive. Apply that this guy really isn't who he says he is. He, 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 you know, he, they wouldn't have done that to him if he wasn't causing the uproar and causing all the problems and causing this riot. So he's reminding them of how he even got there. So we can imagine that Paul is probably, if not still nursing his wounds, but bearing the marks of what just took place in Philippi. And now he's coming in amongst these people, and he's proclaiming the gospel. And Mark explained to us last week of what took place there with the house of Jason and bringing Jason out. And again, they had to leave at night, kind of get away quietly. So it's like, oh, there's a pattern here. You see? You see how this is going? Ah, what didn't work out for him? So he just leaves at night and takes off and doesn't even care to say bye to any of you. Doesn't even care to set the record straight. You know, he's not the guy that you thought he was. So he's calling them to mind and he's saying, I want you to remember these things. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to show that his conduct doesn't match up with what they're saying about him. If we were to do the same thing for people, and we were to say, someone were to say about me, you know, Justin's really an evil guy. Uh, He just means bad for everybody. He's out for himself. All he wants to do is see what he can get off of you, and then once he's gotten what he can get, then he's going to take off. Would I be able to go back and say, look at my life and look at all my conduct and how that doesn't add up? Okay? Now, that's an extreme case. Think of it in a small way at work, in your family, in your neighborhood, would people be able to view your conduct and then come out with the proper idea of who you really are? Paul is able to do this by simply recounting what took place and how it happened. It says, we suffered before and were spitefully treated. And again, he says, as you know. By the way, he mentions this idea of as you know, or calling them to witness five different times. Um, in these 12 verses, and two times he brings God to witness, uh, and we'll see why he brings God to witness in these two times. 
but he says that uh, they were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. When it talks about this idea of speak, or yours might say we dared to speak, it has this idea of speaking openly and speaking freely without fear. Um, they have no fear for the consequence that will happen to them. Even after, in the last town that they were in, they were just beaten brutally. They still came here and had no fear to preach the gospel to them. So what does that tell us about Paul? That he cares more about the Thessalonian people that he's never met before in his life than his own life. Even after being beaten Philippi and coming to Thessalonica and seeing that things are kind of going that same direction, he still has this desire because he loves the people so much and he doesn't even know them. No relationship to them. He's, he's just a guy that's coming to town with a group of people. This is the kind of heart that we see from our Lord Jesus Christ and we see expressed in the Apostle Paul. And he makes this statement that he speaks freely, but it's that, that it's the gospel of God. This isn't something that he came up with. Um, I think today in the, in the world today, we want everything to be of the highest intellect, religious intellect, knowledge, ability, whatever it is. We want it to sound a certain way. We want to be seen as a certain way when really the gospel is not ours to manipulate. The gospel is not ours to change or try to make sound a certain way. We are simply a herald from the king of what the message is. We don't get to change it. We don't get to make it our own when we express the gospel. We share how Christ has saved us, but in expressing the gospel, it's a message from God. It doesn't belong to us. And so this is what Paul's emphasizing, and he emphasizes it a number of times in this portion and in other epistles, that we didn't make this up. We're not that, it's not that we're really smart and we came up with this idea of salvation through Jesus Christ. This came from God, and it's coming to you. So what does that do? It takes this ownership of the gospel away from Paul. So now it's not Paul's message. It's God's message. And he's not bringing it to you, and it's not a false message, because it's from God. It's a true message. And so he goes on, <clears throat> and he talks about how he spoke it in much conflict. Um, yours might say opposition. And really, it has, the word has this idea of Olympic competition, uh, great stress, a great trial. Uh, a great foot race, you know. So they're going through this and they're doing this and they're, they're trying to achieve something and the conditions are hard on them and they're, they're willing to do it to overcome. So we're going to break in now at verse 3. Verse 3, it says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So our exhortation did not come, and he mentions three things. Uh, it did not come from error, and it did not come from uncleanness or impurity, nor was it in deceit. Now we might have a few different ideas of, of what these words convey, but it, it talks about this, this idea of the first one, it wasn't wrong and it wasn't by mistake. So it wasn't just by accident that they ended up here with this specific message. Uh, this message was, was purposeful. They had a call from God to enter into this region of Macedonia and then into Greece. And we see that it was purposeful. 
So he's reminding them that God specifically wanted the gospel to come to these people. It wasn't by mistake, and it's not a false gospel. He says that it didn't come with impurity or uncleanness, um, this idea of being from impure motives, that you had a desire to gain for yourself and you had a desire to achieve things for your own personal gain. And it says that uh, it wasn't in deceit. Um, we might uh, uh, view this as a fisherman uh, going out and throwing bait out on a line and then we're, we're really deceiving the fish and saying that, you know, this is a, a good piece of bait for you to eat and to fill your body up, but the minute you take a bite, we pull it back and we got you now. It wasn't a gotcha game. It wasn't a, they're not there to, to try to, Paul gets, you know, no personal benefit from, from these people coming to Christ from his message. So it says, as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. This idea of being approved means to first be tested and then to be found approved. So it wasn't just like, uh, you know, Paul was just picked like this and that. Paul had to go through a series of what Paul calls testing and then as being approved by God, he was entrusted with this message to go out and preach it amongst all these people. It's important for us to realize that everything that Paul was enduring at the time and going through was shaping him into a proper servant or a proper steward of this gospel message. And so what we see in this portion, if you're a, um, a shepherd among the people, if you're a minister, a leader in these works, you have to realize that the message that you're giving, the purpose that you're there, is not really your own. You are a steward, and as a steward, you are supposed to be faithful with what has been given to you. And so what we see in Paul is this, like, faithful, is this faithfulness that he has for the gospel message. And it says that he's been entrusted with it. Um, it says that he didn't do it to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Um, this pleasing men has this idea of making them feel in such a way as to give them something, uh, to, to, to make them benefit. So I didn't, I'm not doing these things that I may get something from you people. That's what Paul's telling them. And he says that he does it to, to please God, who tests our hearts. And oftentimes we have this view of the heart as just emotions, uh, but in the New Testament, in the Greek, it has this emphasis of the, the emotions, the intellect, and the will. It doesn't just mean emotion like, oh, my heart you know, goes out to you. It means really your whole person. Um, God tests your whole person, what you, how you feel in your emotions, what you think in your intellect, and what you choose to do in your, your will, your motives. So God's testing all these things. Verse 5. <clears throat> Excuse me. The cold sounds way worse than it is. It really doesn't bother me at all, but when you speak out loud, it makes, makes it hard. In verse 5, it says, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Now, this is the one of the times where Paul calls God to witness, and it's because the people cannot see Paul's motives. So Paul can say, I didn't do this as a cloak for covetousness. I didn't disguise myself and then seek to gain something from you. But you can't tell. You wouldn't know that. But he says, God is witness. God knows that I didn't do that for this. So in a, in a moment when 
Paul cannot call upon the saints to review something by the evidence and make a judgment. Paul, bring, Paul brings God into witness and says, God is my witness that I didn't do it for these reasons. So what's interesting, he didn't use flattering words. Now, <clears throat> you know, we have a certain view of flattery um, that may be applicable but in, insincere, you know, might be our idea of flattery. So, you know, I, I uh, tell my wife that she looks, you know, amazingly, abundantly beautiful, you know, does she look beautiful? Yes, she looks beautiful. Amazingly, abundantly, well, now I'm just kind of being over the top. You know, do I really mean those things is, you know, maybe not, you know. So it's just like this insincere, but it's kind of like accepted, like, oh, you know, okay. Oh, that sounds nice. He doesn't mean that kind of flattery. Uh, he means flattery in the sense of I, I, am, I am telling you these things to get you to do what I want. So I, I think of it more as like a salesman. So salesman, you know, you go into a used car lot, and the salesman is there, and he says, this is the best car on the lot. You know, th this car is better than any car out there on the thing. He's not telling you these things just out of, like, for no reason. He's telling you these things because he wants to sell you that car. He wants to make money. So the motives behind the flattery is really the effect. So Paul's saying, I'm not a traveling salesman. I wasn't, you know, peddling this, this gospel so that I can get something from you. I'm simply coming here to, to give this message to you. It's, it's completely free. I'm not using flattery words because you're not really the one I'm trying to please. God is the one I'm really trying to please. So you see how this takes all the pressure off of us when we think about the heart of a true minister of God is one that comes only to please God and lives only to please God. That they don't worry about the, the impact of the people and how the people treat them but as long as they're being faithful to what they've been entrusted with. And this is an interesting portion. Had this not occurred where Paul was attacked in such a way, we would kind of miss this glimpse of Paul's heart for the ministry that he's been entrusted with. So he says that they didn't come with a cloak of covetousness. Um, it wasn't out of greed. And we might think this idea of greed only being money, but it could also be applied to other things. But uh, the, the strong emphasis is on monetary gain. Verse 6, it says, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles. It says, uh, this idea of seeking glory, it goes more so than this idea of uh, seeking to please you. They wanted to seek glory from you to build up their own ego. So, I, you know, Paul's like, I'm not traveling and getting beaten up and getting thrown in jail and being tossed out and coming here and then being sh shuffled out at night to build my ego. That's not why I'm doing this. And so he, he's explaining to the people, it's not that I, I want something from you. Um, when we might have made demands as apostles. Did he have the right to demand these things as an apostle? Yeah, he did. And Paul brings this up a number of times in his epistles, that I have the right as an apostle to tell you what to do. And you have to do it. And if you don't, then there's consequences. But Paul never does that. Even when in Philemon, when you hear about it, and he's talking to Philemon about Onesimus, and he says, now Philemon, you, you understand that I have the ability and the right to tell you to do this. But for love's sake, I'm not going to. I want you to do it. And this, this really is an identifiable marker in Paul's ministry. 
that Paul has every right to take advantage of these things, but he chooses to suffer instead. And when you say something like that, you automatically think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every right, every opportunity, every justification, and yet he chooses to suffer instead. He chooses to go to the cross instead, to leave his throne, to shed his blood, to be humiliated, to be beaten, to suffer that we might receive. Has every right, chooses suffering instead. He gets in this idea, this is where it gets real interesting in verse 7. Um, Paul describing himself as a nursing mother is always interesting. But it says, we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Uh, there's actually a lot of debate on, on this uh, verse, this idea of we were gentle among you. The, the way it's structured in the Greek could be taken as we were babies among you. And then he refers to himself as a nursing mother in the same breath. And so you kind of have this mixing of metaphors. But Paul does do that. And so there are scholars out there that have a real struggle with this verse. And they say, well, you know, maybe he means that they're baby-like, like a mother would talk in babbling talk to the baby, uh, that a mother would, 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 you know, stoop down to the level of a baby that it might communicate well with the baby. The idea of gentle, I think, conveys that, that idea without being so extreme as to say Paul is saying, you know, we were babies among you as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. That kind of seems strange. But this idea of a, a nursing mother uh, with her own children, we're waiting on our third baby. Uh, we just had an appointment and uh, everything looks good. The baby's in the right position and uh, it's still a girl, so Kathy was pleased. She, she had this dream that she was going to go in there and find out it was a boy and uh, uh, see me do a victory dance. But uh, it was, everything's still on track, and um, the baby is healthy and measuring well, so this is all good. But when you think of uh, a mother and a child is one thing, but you think of a mother and a child that's nursing, and it is a completely different thing. Uh, the child is solely dependent upon the mother for everything that it provides. And there are certain things that only the mother can provide. And so there's this unique relationship that Paul is speaking of that, that's so intimate, it's unlike anything else that we know or experience. And it's something that's so one-sided. It's not that the baby provides anything for the mother, but the mother provides everything for the baby. And Paul's saying this, you know, this isn't a give-and-take relationship. This is a relationship where I give everything. When we came among you, we were, we were as a mother that gives everything for her nursing child. And he tells the reason why. It says that they were so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. Now, as Mark said last week, it, it wasn't that Paul was there a great amount of time. But he had so much love and care for the people that he preached the gospel to that it, it was so affectionate. So when you think about this man, right, taking people prisoner, having them beaten, having them murdered, to be 180 degrees and coming as a, as a mother would come to her nursing child. 
I mean, praise God that, I mean, he is, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one that can do that to a person. And again, we don't have the right to say, well, I'm, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I really am not like that. But I don't have that excuse anymore. The, you know, Christ saved me. Christ lives in me. Christ should come out of me. That's how I should be. This is how I should act. In verse 9, it says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. Now, he's wanting them to continue to remember, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. He wants them to remember how painful it was for them, uh, uh, still nursing their wounds, perhaps, still going out, working perhaps all night, preaching all day. They're just spilling themselves out for these Thessalonian people, again, that they've never met that they've just gotten to know. And he's saying, I want you to remember what it was like for us. If we came with impure motives to get money from you, to get, why would we have been doing all this? What would it have all been for? We didn't ask for anything. We didn't receive anything. We, we came and we gave. And that's really the, the whole portion of this, this uh, 1 through 12, is that Paul's trying to get them to understand the fact that he doesn't want anything from them. He came to give, not to get. He came with a heart to give. Not only the gospel, it says, but he says his own life. He wants to pour out himself so that the Thessalonians can be saved, and then we get to the reasons why later. Verse 10, again, you are witnesses, and he says this, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believed, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. So he's calling them to witness, but he's also calling on God because there's things that, again, the Thessalonians can't see. This idea of devoutly, you might have in your Bible says holy, uh, as they came holy, um, as they came justly, or as they came righteously, and blamelessly is pretty much the, the word that's used in most versions uh, being blameless or above reproach. And Paul, you can see in, in these verses, he often will hit three different things um, as he's talking about it. We didn't come in, uh, in uncleanness, uh, in, in error, or in deceit. And in this one, he says, you know, it devoutly, justly, blamelessly. So this idea of holy, uh, we would assume being with, with, with completely pure motives, no negativity, no no as God would be holy, and he gives to us, Paul was holy, and he gives to the Thessalonians. He didn't do it out of personal gain. And so we see that he would have to have God as witness for that because the Thessalonians wouldn't know that. He says that he did so righteously or justly, that everything that he did was according to as it should be, and that he did this blamelessly, meaning that the people that are saying these things about them have nothing to point to. They only insinuate based on the facts. And I want everyone here, because we all have the tendency to believe the worst about people. It's just our nature. You have somebody that comes to help you, and you think, man, that person's great. They, they dropped everything to come and help me. And somebody says, well, you know, yeah, they helped you that one time, but you just wait. They're going to ask for something in return. It's going to be way worse than what you got from them. And immediately you're like, oh, wow, okay, I'm going to be looking out for that. You know, I'm going to watch. We want to, we don't want to, but we automatically can believe the worst about people. And unfortunately, a lot of times it's true what they're saying. 
And that's what makes it so easy to believe the negative things about people. And what Paul is saying in this portion here is, that may be true about other people, but it isn't true about us. We came with a specific message gifted uh, to us by God, entrusted by God, sent by God to do these things. And God is our witness that we did it in these ways. And you could look at our, you could look at our testimony among you, and you, you can't point to anything that we did wrong. The only problem is these people are pointing to certain things and they're putting their wicked twist on it. And so one, we want to be careful that we're not people that put wicked twists on other people and that we're not so quick to believe the wickedness about other people. We need to believe based on the evidence that we have about somebody. We don't need to be making judgments about motives and what they're really like. We need to say, this person has never treated me that way and all I have is what they've done for me and what they've done to me. So I'm not going to have an opinion about a person because of something somebody told me that I can't verify. So it's just a little side note to take into consideration because I know it's easy for me to believe negative things about people when they, people tell me. Verse 11, so we already had a metaphor about Paul as a mother, now we get one as him as a father. And so you can kind of, you could break this up in a number of ways, this chapter. Uh, you could break it up based on metaphors. Uh, his, him as a steward, him as a mother, his as a father, and him as a herald. Um, you can break it up a number of ways. But this, uh, this metaphor here is interesting. He says, uh, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So again, three things, exhorted, comforted, charged. Um, exhorted might be just like an encouragement. I've come to encourage you to do these things. I have comforted you because we can imagine that as the first believers in a given region, it is extremely difficult for them. You have to remember, like, you know, we think of Christianity as something that's well-known. You know, the Bible is in how many different languages, preached all over the world, radios, messages going out, and this and that. There was nothing back then. Paul was the first person to bring the gospel to these people. And for these that were converts, it would have been very difficult for them. So there's this idea of comforting the faint-hearted or the weary. Um, so he exhorts them to encourage them. He comforts them uh, to console them. And he charges them. So this is an idea that when we think of this concept of truth and love, if we emphasize truth so much, it's not going to come out very loving. And if we emphasize love so much, it's probably going to waver on the truth. So there's this perfect marriage of this truth and love that the message itself, the gospel, is of God and it is uncompromising. We do not have the ability nor the opportunity nor the right to alter the gospel in any way. We need to speak plain. We don't need to dress it up. We don't need to make it sound a certain way. It needs to be what it is that Christ Jesus came in this world to save sinners, that he died on a cross and shed his blood to satisfy God's judgment against our sin, your sin, the things that you've done wrong to break this relationship with God. And Jesus died and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, proving that God accepted this sacrifice as a payment for your sins, and you can be saved. It's a simple gospel. We don't need to dress it up in miraculous terms or this or that. It's miraculous in and of itself. So this idea that Paul is going and he's encouraging them as a father would encourage his own kids. And this idea of complete unselfishness. As a father, I want 
everything for my kids. I, w- I want them to go on. There, there's no ill motive. I'm not looking for what I can get from my kids when they're older or this or that. I want them to have everything in life for Christ, to serve him completely unhindered. And so there's this great desire that a father would have. And this is the charge. He charges every one of you. And that's real emphatic again. It's not like, yeah, I charge everybody. No, every single one of you. He charges as the father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Uh, Notice that call is in the present tense. It's not in the past tense as he's called you. It's not like he will call you but he's always calling you into his kingdom. It's this ongoing thing that's taking place, this present tense calling. Um, So today, we have to remember that we've been charged to walk worthy of the kingdom and glory of God. So this would have been a a difficult thing for Paul to pen. Um, It's hard to realize that your, your view has been tainted in the eyes of someone else. But Paul is not doing this again for his own sake. He's doing it for the sake sake of the saints there. And it's this real emphasis where we get a glimpse into the heart of Paul, but really it's a glimpse into the heart of our Savior and his attitude toward us. No impure motives, no uncleanness. Everything was to give. And we have to ask ourselves, in the ministries we're involved in, in the, the ministry we have here amongst the saints, what is our heart to one another? Are we here and it's a give and take? Or is everyone's desire here to come and to give of themselves? Some of us are hurting. Some of us have gone through a hard time, and it's like, you know, I would like a little comfort, encouragement, um, you know, help, uh, whatever it is. We just need to take the mind of Christ, be willing to suffer these things as Paul was willing to suffer, that we could give to others, that we would see others go on. Um, We're going to continue in the rest of the the chapter uh, this evening, but uh, I hope that was a help to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for your word and the um, opportunity that we've had to open it so freely, so publicly, so boldly uh, to proclaim the truth of, of your gospel that has been given to us. And Father, the heart uh, with Paul and the heart that we should have as we are uh, ministers of this gospel, as we proclaim it to those that we come in contact with, that we need to have the same love and care. Uh, for these people to be willing to to suffer that they might be saved and go on for the Lord. So, Father, we know that we don't always live up to this. We pray that you would continue to mold us and conform us to the image of Christ, um, that you might get all the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.